Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. Before we start, can I please ask you to subscribe and follow on your podcast provider and share with anyone who would enjoy the podcast. Also, if you're looking for some surf gear, go to Northcore on the internet and use the promotion code GRUMPYSURFER10, capital letters, to receive 10% off your purchase. If I can also use this opportunity just to say Happy New Year to everybody. I hope your holiday was good. I hope Santa brought you everything that you wanted and asked him for. I also hope that everyone had the opportunity to be around their families, whether it was indoors or outdoors, or you could do Zoom or, you know, you had a few phone calls and you were able to do something to occupy yourself. I know it's been quite a hard time this year, which leads me on to saying thank you very much for supporting the podcast over the last 10 months. January is going to be a full lineup. It's loaded at the moment, so I hope you uh, enjoy listening to them. Okay, on the podcast today, I have a photographer and writer. He is also the editor of one of the longest-serving surfing magazines in the UK. Please enjoy my conversation with the editor of Wavelength Magazine, Luke Gartside. Luke Gartside, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, not bad. What have you been up to today? Um, not much so far. Just got up this morning, checked the waves. Uh, not much good, howling northwesterly today. So just had a bit of breakfast, did a little bit of work, um, got, got myself ready to chat. Yeah, I've, I've been checking the forecast this week and it doesn't look particularly good, but... I think uh, I think I might score Limith next week by the looks of it. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a cheeky Limith chart coming up. Yeah, I don't. It's such a long drive from down here that I always um, be somewhere that I can never quite bother to drive up to. But I think you get lazy when you live right in the centre. Like I live right in the centre of Newquay, so we've got so many average beaches close that I never actually make the effort to drive to the half decent waves. Yeah. So for the people that are listening, the uh, window where Luke's flat is, is literally facing straight out onto Fistral Beach, which is pretty epic to be honest. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's really good. Like I say, it makes you a bit lazy, but you do. I Last night I got the chance to you get little windows where, um, where you're not sure, you're not sure if the swell's going to fill in or not, and you just kind of can't get any work done all day because you're just staring out the window, and then suddenly you'll see the first set of a new swell come in, and just sprint down through the golf course. So it's nice when it's like that, but yeah, it does make you a bit lazy. <laughs> yeah, festival far too much. I, lo- I like that you're doing a little bit of work, and the waves are good, and then just like that, it's a little bit like me, but with my line of work, it's a little bit different. People are like, where are you actually going? Yeah, yeah, I've just yeah, I'm going surf here. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. Luckily, with my job, I don't have to make too many excuses. I can just say, like, oh, it's for work, isn't it? I've got to go surfing, you know, got to, got to go surfing. That's where you come up with the best stories when you're out surfing. But. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, just so people know, um, just explain a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm I'm the editor of Wavelength magazine. Um, I basically do everything from, from edit our print editions, which are biannual, to I run social media as well. And then I edit all the content output on the website I'm with my colleague Paul, who's based down in, in Hossegor. He's our man on the ground in Europe. So I sort of cover the, the UK side of things. Um, and then also work on little special projects that we do as well. We do some events. So we did a drive-in cinema this summer, and I was quite involved with um, sort of working on content to promote that. And then I do a lot of photography as well for the mag. So I'm always out and about shooting um, photos for the Instagram and for the website. Um, 
Yeah, that about covers it, I think. It's kind of it, the what exactly is in the magazine's remit kind of changes year to year as we kind of adapt to the obviously the whole way the media landscape's changing. Um, so that means my job actually morphs quite quickly. But um, yeah, it's great. It keeps you on the toes, always like new stuff to be working on. So like I, I never thought I'd end up working so closely involved with events as I have done the last couple of years, but I've, it's actually something I've really enjoyed. It's nice to actually get out and meet the people who read the magazine rather than just like seeing their comments on social media and stuff. So it's been really fun. Events seem to be quite a big thing recently, don't they? I mean, you know, obviously because of the time that we're in, especially this year with all the COVID stuff, everyone is trying to get outside a little bit more. You do see a lot of events, especially competitions, are still trying to run as well, which is kind of a big thing within the surfing community to a certain extent. Depends whether you're a purist or not, doesn't it? Whether you're into all that or into the uh, surf contests. But it, it's definitely one a, a way that you can get a platform out there too, um, to a bigger audience, I think. But necessarily the, the people that are in the surfing community, but people outside it as well. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And I've seen like there have been quite a lot of cool little grassroots events popping up recently as well. So I was actually at the, um, well, there's one at Little Fistle called the Single Fin Shootout, which I went down to on Sunday. Um, and it, yeah, it was just so nice. It, the, the, there's no replacement for all getting together and seeing your mates and watching a bit of surfing, even if it's not particularly, even if you're not really following it. Like I was thinking when I was there yesterday, like if you haven't got, up, even with a beach announcer and a big screen on the beach, like you get, if you go down to the comp in Hosagor or, or in Peniche or even like further afield, it's still quite hard, to, uh, quite hard sport to follow. So I think when you have a nice grassroots comp like that and there's no announcer and there's no, um, you know, screen with the scores on, it does just become not so much about watching and following what's happening with the surfing, but it's just much more of a get together. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, there was another one as well down in, in Bournemouth recently, the Channel Coast Log Jam, which I didn't make it down to, but I think it's events like that. Um, it, I can see why why they're kind of on the upsurge because I think those more than the formalized competitive events like um, like the QS comps and stuff, I think they're less enjoyable. The, the grassroots ones are definitely more enjoyable to attend as a as a viewer and as an attendee, even if you're not following what the action quite as closely. Do you feel that the because of the COVID period and people are been more inclined to stay at home or closer to home that it's reinvigorated what you would call a community. So the surfing community globally is linked together because you enjoy the art of riding waves. But it can also be quite disconnected as well because, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I'm super into surfing. I watch all the events. I read as many books and magazines that I can get my hands on. I'm always looking for like the newest clip that's coming out from from whether it's the pros or, you know, I've been mega into um, Torrin Martin recently. I just found that randomly and that's now like my new thing that I'm super into. Um, do you find that, do you think that there's been a reinvigoration of a surfing community now because of the period we've been through? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think like I, I definitely saw it out in the lineup particularly during lockdown that surfing was one of people's only opportunities to socialize so there are definitely people saying hello to each other in the lineup at North Fistral who, who might not usually you know because you suddenly felt that 
that camaraderie, particularly during the first lockdown where a lot of people couldn't surf. Obviously, the rules were you could only really surf if you could walk to the beach. And so all of a sudden, I think that like really brought the, the, the local surf community together because everyone kind of maybe there was a little bit of a sense that everyone was breaking the rules a little bit together, you know. And, and so I've seen that it's definitely become more friendly in the water among that that tight knit thing, uh, among the, the sort of t- the tight knit group. But on a on a global level, yeah, it's hard to say, isn't it? Because within surfing, you almost have your little tribe who you're super friendly with and you're really and then as soon as people come in from sort of outside that little tribe I think people's natural reaction is to be quite hostile to them often someone told me a story yesterday actually about they were up in Durzo and um it was a busy day up in Durzo and the waves were pumping and and a local guy took off on a wave and someone dropped in on him and they both popped up in the white water and the guy was shouting and going mental and then the guy who dropped in on him turned round and it turned out to be one of his old mates who he hadn't seen for years. And all of a sudden, his attitude just flicked straight away. And he was like, oh, mate, I haven't seen you for ages. If I knew it was you, I would have said, go, I would have shouted you onto it. So I think that we, we have like really close bonds with the people who we consider in our little circle. And then we're maybe more, we, we, we default to hostility with people who we think fall outside of that. And that doesn't exist in a lot of other sports i don't think you get it in climbing i don't think you get it so much in skateboarding it is i think it is quite it's probably not unique to surfing but it is quite specific to surfing that i think do you think it's probably because there are more people now that are using surfing as you know an outdoor activity where back 20 even 10 15 years ago it probably wasn't as busy in the water but- yeah i mean there's definitely a sense of that that it's there's limited resources Kinda. I mean, I don't know. That's how it. That's how people perceive it. I don't know whether whether waves are actually a limited resource strictly, but when you're out in the lineup, that's how it feels. Especially when it's there's long lulls between the sets, and you maybe get a four wave set, and you think like, I want to be on one of those four waves. And if people are getting in my way, or if people are paddling around me and not taking their turn, or some people's attitude is, I don't feel like there there are other people in the lineup who aren't as entitled to those set waves as me because they're not as good or they don't live here or whatever so I think it's that I think it's the the fact that it feels like a limited resource that breeds that um that hierarchy and that hostility and I don't I don't think it's entirely a negative thing I think it has its place you know um I think there's lots of places in the world where that that pecking order is really important to like maintain some level of order and etiquette you know just like on the road you don't when, when my friends who who don't surf ask me about it that would be the probably the example I'd use you know like the roads work because everyone knows the rules of the road and if people cut each other up or then you do you are within your right to be a little bit annoyed about it but in a to do it in a polite way it's obviously best but um yeah so I I don't think it's entirely bad that that hostility that sometimes exists but I don't know, maybe it's something we could all work on a little bit, personally. Yeah, it's all down to pe- pe- persons, people's own um, perceptions, isn't it? But also their own uh, their own personality traits as well. You might have somebody that's super competitive, not necessarily surfing standard-wise that good. But, you know, somebody drops in on them, they're going to get, you know, probably have a little shower at them or something like that. Whereas, like, I like to probably being a little bit older and I don't know, looking looking at it from an outsider's perspective, 
you shout at somebody that has done something wrong, they're going to have a negative effect from that. When I go with my friends, I go surfing with them. When I go into the water, I'm a little bit of a loner. Mm. I kind of like paddle off on my own a little bit. I don't like sitting in a pack. So if there's a peak going, I'll probably paddle off and find what where's the empty space. Is is there is there a wave breaking there? I'll look, I'll look for it. I'll use my little bit of my knowledge that I've gained over the years that I've been doing it, and I've gone right. I'm going to go. I'm going to go and sit there. But that's the way I, I enjoy it. Me going to a lineup, say for instance here at Little Fistral or somewhere when it's like you know super good and you've got a load of really good guys out. I don't really want to go and sit amongst them and have the hassle and then probably catch a couple of waves. I want to go and get a few waves and, and enjoy it a little bit more. Okay, maybe if it's a shittier peak than, you know, the the one that everybody else is riding, riding that's maybe Barrett or something like that. But I'm I'm doing it to for my own purposes. If somebody drops in on me or, or does, some, does something wrong, I'm just kind of going, yeah, okay. There's, yeah, there's plenty more coming through, but you spoil it for yourself if you get angry. Though, for don't sure, you? yeah. I always think the the person in those in localized lineups around the world, which thankfully you know we we don't have many or hardly all of them in in the southwest of Britain, but in heavily localized lineups around the world, I always think like, is that enforcer really having a good time? Surely it's ruining his surf having to shout at people and be aggressive. To, and it, it, probably in his or her words that they'd be doing that to keep order keep maintain order in the lineup and make sure that the locals are getting waves and that um but like it must ruin the day a little bit mustn't it i don't know i think you gotta be a strange kind of person to to have more fun being a regulator than just someone who's like you say paddling off finding your own little peak and, and just having a nice surf so i always feel a bit bad like because oh, anno- then you have to maintain it as well like once you've once you've marked yourself out um as the person who's regulating that lineup you can't shout a little bit and then go back to putting your head down and you've got you committed to it for the whole session and mm. if you get a reputation maybe you've even committed to it for your whole surfing life you know you i can think of spots around europe where you know the name of the main enforcer at that spot and if they paddle out they must feel that pressure on them like oh God, be an enforcer again today. How annoying. Like You make it sound like a... an ice hockey game. <laughs> yeah. The guys are picking on the little ones, right? I'm gonna deck him. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they get a, maybe they get a kick out of it. I'm not sure. Maybe they get more of a kick out of it than they would from just taking a few waves, but But don't you find the hassles um that the hassle is a lot more when it is maybe a little bit smaller? So let's let's use an average clean day of like, you know, two, three, four foot, right? A lot of people out in the water like we've seen recently. You're probably going to get a lot more hassle during that time when it when you would call it a um, a non consequential day than the days that are bigger. You know, shoulder head high, bigger period where you know the waves are a little bit more critical. Mm. You probably don't get it as much then either because people are concentrating on where they're sitting or or their positioning to make those decent waves. Use the example of of Linmouth or a point break because that's what basically what Linmouth is is a point break. You have that formative order, don't you? Where like you know you're sat at the back, everyone takes a turn to catch their wave, comes back round, and they should, they should technically <laughs> go back to the back of that queue, and that's how it works. It's like a conveyor belt, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, in theory. Well, in theory. <laughs> 
depending whether you're local or not. And this is where localism comes in, right? If people start cutting in front of you, that's when you start getting a little bit of a sad on. But again, you know, talking about localism and stuff, I guess that's where that enforcer type of guy comes in, right? Yeah, I guess the the idea is that if there's someone there who's having words with people if they behave like that, it will minimise that behaviour. That's that's the idea behind it. But I don't... I'm not sure. I haven't seen... I mean, there's places like Pipe, for example, where apparently it works pretty perfectly. But that's where you've stepped it up again, where the consequences aren't only getting shouted at or, or um, maybe getting punched on the beach, although I don't think that happens quite as much now. But you could also end up burning someone and them having to straighten out and going into the reef. So you really... Whereas... At Limmouth, if you paddle around someone or if a point break or a beachy, you paddle around someone and you don't observe the turn-taking system, it's, you're not actually putting anyone in mortal danger. So I think that, that yeah, there's obviously, in those pla- like you say, in those places where there's more consequences, it's, um, it's kind of easier to observe that line of etiquette because it seems that the consequences of you not doing it, yeah, you could really put someone in harm's way. So yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you. So where did you, um, where did you grow up? Um, so I grew up in, in West London originally till I was about 10 or 11. And then we moved out to um, a little village in Oxfordshire. My, my family somewhere real rural, um, like about half an hour outside of Oxford, uh, which is a very strange place, obviously, to be a kid obsessed with surfing. But um, I'm a Midlander myself. so uh, Yeah, well, maybe not that strange then. I don't know. I feel like every... Every surf photographer, lots. I remember around the time I was getting really into surf photography, lots of the surf photographers who I who I looked up to didn't seem to be from near the coast. Um, you know, I don't Tim Nunn's from Ip, from Ipswich or something, and Sharpies from Somerset, and so certainly the, the mag editors at that time um, weren't. Obviously, there was exceptions. My favourite photographer when I was young was Mickey Smith from West Cornwall. But it didn't... I feel like there's something... Um, the level of obsession that you build up when you're that far away from surfing, when you can't just connect to it by just looking out the window or going for a surf. So you have to study it and obsess over it through reading and watching films and <clears throat> stuff like that. And also, when you go to the coast, even if you go to a bit of coast like Bournemouth, which is where I grew up surfing and sort of starting doing photography, you're stoked even if it's two foot and sh- two foot and onshore, which it invariably is because you've got that that distance away. So yeah, what it, it is, a, it was a strange place to begin, but um, you don't take anything for granted when you grow up in rural Oxfordshire because whenever you get a wave, it's like you're, you're elated, you know. Did you start photography? basically because of surfing or did you were you one of these people that goes for a nice little walk with your mum and dad and you had a little camera and you're taking pictures of flowers and stuff like that maybe a (laughs) bit of flowers I don't know I was always I always wanted to shoot like action stuff um I can't I think it all came at the same time so like I'd go out BMXing with my friends and I was just not not much good at it so I'd end up taking photos of them like going over jumps and stuff yeah, I I remember coming down to Boardmasters in about 2006 um, and just having my dad's DV camera and just filming the whole thing and then going home and making a little edit of it. And um, and then from there, I just started shooting, yeah, anything action really. I shot in the snow dome. I used to go and shoot snowboarding in the Milton Keynes snow dome when they had a comp on with the kicker and I used to go and shoot wakeboarding uh, on, on like the wakeboarding lakes and then I also used to go and shoot it Behind the boat, there was an event called Wake Stock, which one year they had like 20 minutes from where I lived. 
near Oxford and I was just went down and shot that the whole weekend. Um, so yeah, it was just anything, anything sort of action based, but then the more, the more I got into surfing, the more surfing became my focus with it really. So the more I both got into doing surfing and the more I got the chance to come and watch people surfing by about 16, 17, I was pretty much obsessed with shooting just surfing. Um, and that's carried on really until now. Were you into like writing then as well? Did did you do a bit of writing and photography or did that come a bit later? I think it came a little bit later. I was always fairly into writing. Like my my mum's, well, she's actually an actor, but she's also like written plays and stuff. So she would always encourage us to like me and my sister, who now is also an actor and is also trying to write a play. So but yeah, she would always encourage us to do bits of writing. And I, I when I finished my A-levels, I went round Europe in a van and then to Indo and through all of that I like kept a blog. Oh, I actually I remember when I was 16 or possibly 17 I the editor of Wavelength at the time uh, who was Ben Selway they used to run this thing in Wavelength called Four Corners where yep. they would get like a really short little dispatch from each surfing region of the UK. And because I was always submitting photos from Bournemouth he asked me if I'd like write that for Bournemouth and I remember being at the time like what, is he mad? Like, he wants me to write in a surf mag. I remember emailing back, like, I'm only 16 and I can't really write. And he was like, no, nah, don't worry about it. And he used to edit it pretty heavily. I'm sure it was rubbish. But um, so I think that was, that made me think, like, oh, it's worth doing little bits of writing alongside the photography as well. And then, yeah, I really enjoyed writing a blog when I was when I was in Indo, like, writing about all the stuff I was shooting to sort of just go on the blog with the photos because it was pre-Instagram. So I feel like, now the what well, instagram really encourages you to just stick a stick shots out at like a rate of knots with short little captions whereas back then everyone had like a tumblr or a blog spot where it's kind of encouraged to do a bit more writing with it maybe so um yeah i think that that's partially why and i really enjoyed writing as well and then when i went to uni to do photography i did a lot of writing alongside my photography then as well so they kind of yeah developed together i guess that must have been pretty cool as a 16 year old being asked to write a you know, a little section for, for Wavelength, you know, what one of the UK's, which still is now, premium surfing magazines. Yeah, I was so stoked. I remember, and I told my mates, and they were just like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, obviously, all my all my mates into other stuff living in, in rural Oxfordshire couldn't really understand what, what I, why I was always going down to the South Coast and then how I was now writing a bit about it in a magazine. I, but I, I was... I was, yeah, I was elated about it, really happy. And I used to get real excited. And I used to go down because I had to submit one each month. And I used to like proper try and do my research to make sure it was really good. So I'd like speak to lots of different, like on Facebook, I'd message all the surfers from down there who I knew and be like, right, what's going on? And try and pull it together into something good. Um, yeah, it was really good. Amazing opportunity to offer someone of my age as well. So that's, it's nice that, that Ben <laughs> reckoned that I'd do a good enough job that even with a heavy edit, it'd be good enough to go in the mag. So. Yeah, you talked about um, blogs. Did, did you have your own website while you were doing that? Cause, I mean, I don't know anything really about technological stuff. Call me an old fogey, but, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of my friends used to write blogs and, and take pictures, but it was more of a um, more of a personal thing. You know, people write things down to get things off their chest and all yeah. that sort of thing. So, you know, when you were traveling, did did you find that was a good way of like reaching out as well? Yeah, I think I did hope that people outside like my immediate friends and family would read it. Definitely. I think what I used to do was um, I'd post my photos to Magic Seaweed 
Okay. And then if you if I got lucky, they'd end up on like the front page, and then I'd put a link. I think I put a link in the description of that photo saying like, "Oh, come and read this on my blog." Um, but yeah, it definitely was a way to try and share bits of. I'm pretty sure no one read it, but <laughs> it definitely was the idea was that I wanted to share articles and stories with people already by that point. I think yeah. Yeah, it's quite it's quite an interesting. I've never really thought about it too much because, you know, I've never, I've, I've never been a writer. Um, I've never been particularly into photography. I did kind of like, you know, start to take a few photos, you know, when I was talking about before about, you know, spending a bit of time down here at Watercape taking photos. I took a, I, I remember going out into the lineup, name dropping uh, Uluwatu in Indo and I had this little, um, little crappy disposable waterproof camera that had like a little bezel on the top of it. I remember putting that um, down the top of my little rash vest and taking it out and take some photos. God knows what happened to that. But I remember doing little things like that, um, which is kind of cool. But the writing side of it is only now really when I've started doing this podcast and talking to different people and, and reading do- lots of different books, whether it's biographies or surf travel or something is kind of it it really does like put a little bit more of a spark into you I mean these days now and this is one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about the magazine as well is everything's all about again what we started talking about at the very beginning people putting edits out of videos and you've got these vlogs now Um, you know people's content is more visual and is all over social media so you everyone can make videos whereas do you feel that the it's kind of becoming a little bit of a lost art the written word and photography along with surfing because that's initially where you know all your information and you and your travel stories used to come from Mm. yeah I mean I think the photography side probably more closely mirrors the the video stuff where where it's the the level now is probably higher than it's ever been and also we have access to you can just turn your phone on in the morning go on instagram and see the greatest surf photography ever created you know in in your first scroll of the morning um so i think that instagram has has definitely driven the level of of photography through the roof because it gives photographers the opportunity to like see what each other are doing you know and whether that is um, they want to swim bigger, heavier waves, or they want to get more original angles, or whether they're inspired by the kind of more refined, like artistic eye of another photographer. Whichever it is, those things are driving them to up their game as well. So, um, I think photography is in a great place. I think writing. I mean, there's definitely less incentive now to um, to write because there are less magazines who you're going to sell that to. But at the same time, I think. I think I do still see lots of very, very talented writers. I don't know. It's it's a tricky one for me because I've only been editing the mag for a couple of years. So I'm not sure what the level, both like quantity and quality of written submissions would have been in a pre-social media, pre-Instagram world where there were still lots more print magazines. So I, I can't really compare, but I know that there's there's still incredible surf writers out there. And I do still see really enthusiastic people um who are sort of just starting out as well so they must find that motivation to get really good at it from something other than the fact that they're going to make a career wholly out of that because unless you could i i think unless you could be selling 
a piece to pretty much every print magazine that's still in existence a month, you couldn't really make a living off being just a surf writer. You could go and write for brands. Obviously, we, we were saying earlier that um, brands need loads of content still. Um, so while magazines and media outlets have maybe diminished a little bit, there are more brands than ever and brands are competing harder than ever for people's attention because of social media. And what that means is they have to be creating more and more content than ever. And whilst that's mostly videos and photos, they also do these trips where they have a written element too. Um, uh, so brands like Rock, for example, and Rip Curl, they still send their teams on a team trip um, and then have a writer go along and, and come up with a story from the trip, which then they'll publicize on their website or they'll try and get it placed in a magazine. Um, so I'm not sure, I don't think that answers your question, but by, in terms of a comparison, uh, it probably is diminished slightly, but um, I'm confident that there's still a lot of very passionate and, and talented surf writers out there to mean that the yeah the art's still alive and well i hope for some time to come i was trying to figure it out yesterday like i said when when i got um i subscribed to wavelength before i got in touch with you and and it came through the door yesterday and it, it thinking about what i was going to talk to you about and you know the conversations that i'd like to have with you i was trying to think what is what is kind of like the lost piece with writing um, and reading magazines as opposed to the visuals? So it's really easy just to sit there and watch YouTube or, um, you know, watch the WSL contest like the Maui Pro just started yesterday with the women's event running. I was like, what, what, what's been lost? Well, while you're talking then, I couldn't figure it out. And it's like, it's imagination. Hmm. The whole purpose of having a written word in front of you is that you have a photo a photograph or a couple of photo, uh, photographs from maybe a piece an article that's been written on on the magazine that's in front of you but while you're reading those words you're not looking at that picture for me i'm imagining being there while the person's talking in my head and and i and i think that's a little bit what people are missing with watching videos because your imagination and you're like oh, that sounds so cool I want to go and do something like that you don't really have that because you've got that visual stimuli from watching something right in front of you your brain doesn't have to do anything you just kind of like sit there and go yeah that was pretty cool but then it doesn't spark your um, curiosity I guess, to go and look and do something or read something else. For sure. I think that that's definitely it. Like I, I often think it's, um, it's the mark of a really successful article where you're halfway through reading and your brain actually starts, it sparks something in your brain and your brain actually starts wandering off onto something else that's related to that article. And I think you could, when I'm writing, I think obviously a big part of writing is you want to hold your reader's attention. You know, you want them to flow through the narrative as you're, laying it out but at the same time I, I think that is the really amazing thing about reading a story rather than looking at an image that you engage with an idea and it will you'll connect it to something completely different in your head that so it will make you think of that or you'll think oh actually that's I never thought of it like that and then you'll think I've never thought of it like that before and you'll you'll start thinking yeah about something completely different and I don't think you get that in in the same way I think you get it with really good filmmaking 
I think really good filmmaking in surfing and beyond has the ability to to convey a narrative and 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 inspire ideas in a way that um that good really good writing can but I think with photography not in the same way it's more, it's more of an abstract medium I think you can think it it you'd really like to be there or oh that's it, it can inspire awe, or it can inspire desire but it it probably doesn't send your mind off spinning you know like you described there so being the editor of um of wavelength how did you get into that role because obviously you know from from an outsider's point of view looking in you know that is the you know you're the top guy there what were the hurdles that you went over from leaving university photography and all that to to become one of the UK's leading surf magazine editors well so I think I got really lucky with the timing and um, that's the first thing so the magazine had just been taken over by new owners um, five years ago in 2015. They had just been taken over by new owners and um, Tim Nunn, who was a really great editor of Wavelength and was editor for a really long time, was coming to the end of his editorship. He was ready to move on to, to new things. He just started the Plastic Project, which was his, his thing. So he was moving on to that. And I think to kind of fill in a little bit of the workload in the first summer where the new owners had just taken it over they said let's get an intern and so they put a call out on their social media to say that they'd like a an intern to do photography and help run the social media and so I applied for that and and so I got that so in my second year of uni I went and lived down in Newquay for the summer in 2014 or 2015 maybe 2014 and then worked um behind a desk with this new team basically because these new guys had taken it over and so everyone was kind of learning on the job and we also had the ability to sort of carve out a little bit of a new idea for what wavelength could be so they brought on a um a new art director um called colin who came from a london background he'd worked in a, in big agencies in london he's an amazing designer and an art director and he wanted to move down to cornwall with his family um and so his friend lewis already worked at the mag so he said to Colin to move down and become the art director and that's what set Wavelength off on kind of the art direction path that it's on now um, which is making it a lot more design focused and design led um, and then in terms of the editorial direction we I kind of got to be there when the when the new owners were still hashing out what they wanted the editorial direction to be so even though I was just an intern and then after that internship I went back to uni and worked on a on a on a couple stories for wavelength while I was back at uni in my third year and then finished in my third year and rejoined the team um throughout that process I felt like I got to have a, a little bit of involvement right from the very beginning in forging that editorial direction um so then when we had we went for a couple of interim editors while we were just trying to find our feet um and then we moved to like a guest editor model um uh, and so we had a guest editor in and I was kind of, I always supported the, the editors, um, in a sort of editorial assistant capacity. That was my role back then. Um, and then after we had that guest editor, I, I'd ended up doing quite a lot of the work on that mag. So the bosses said to me, will you, would you like to be the guest editor of the next one? And I thought, well, not, not really ready to do, to do that, to be honest. I'm sure I, I looking back, I, de I definitely wasn't, but I took it on and was like, yeah, I'll have a go. And so I guest edited that one. And then from there, they were sort of like, well, instead of finding a new guest editor every time, would you like to just carry on editing? Um, and I was like, yeah, definitely, I'll, I'll have a crack at it. So I think it was that, yeah, it was it was 
a lot of luck in the fact that I happened to be there right at the very start when the new owners took over and they were looking for a new editorial team and I sort of put my hand up and then I worked with them for those first um, three years, two or three years of their ownership to kind of help the editors forge the new editorial direction. So when it came time to kind of take over, I had a, a pretty good idea of like, what direction we all we all we all had a consensus on what direction we wanted it to go in, and the art directors included. So I, and I had a good working relationship with them already. So yeah, that's that, that's kind of how I ended up in that position. It's a pretty cool way of doing it because you're almost like going through rites of passage with also your dedicated what you would call probably loyalty as well, because you know you're going through that process and and learning all the key skills you need to be where you are now probably did you did you have did you have in the back of your head that you wanted to do that or is it just kind of one of those things that kind of just happened yeah i don't know i always wanted to ever since i was really young and i started submitting those photos and articles to four corners i always wanted to to work for wavelength and um i always maybe wanted I don't know exactly whether I, I'd never really thought about the editor role because I thought I'm probably not good enough a writer. You know, I didn't even do English A-level or whatever. And back then I probably thought, I think I thought that was really important. Like, oh, well, I haven't done any journalism qualifications and I didn't even do English A-level and my spelling's not very good. So I don't know if I was ever shooting for that role specifically. I think I wanted to, like a senior photographer role more. Um, but then, yeah, as, as, it, as it went on and I sort of, I don't know. I feel like it's a thing that everyone experiences when they enter adulthood or like, you know, enter the workplace or whatever, that actually you figure out that everyone's kind of just learning on the job. And it's very rare that you come across someone where you're like, oh, wow, that person has just like completely got their job 100% nailed and they know exactly what they're doing. So I think the fact that I got there and saw that everyone was kind of winging it and everyone was kind of learning on the job and we were all working to try and build wavelength up together that I thought like oh well maybe I could have a have a crack at it you know I've like done maybe like six five issues or something as like an editorial assistant so I had a pretty good idea of how it all works so I thought well there's no harm in having a crack at it so yeah I guess it's a combination of the two it was a big aspiration for me to to work for that company but I don't know if I was necessarily always shooting for the editor role what goes in to the making of a magazine so you went to issue that I got through the door yesterday what goes into making something like that? So when I did my first issue, I decided um, that it would be cool to have all of the content in the issue built around a central theme, um, which is not something we were doing before. But it was I think it was because we dropped from doing six a year to doing four a year. And I thought it'd be cooler if instead of tying it to the time frame, because also the aspiration for everyone in the team was we wanted these to be really timeless things. We wanted it to be like a book that you could pick up again in five years and it wasn't going to feel like the content was old, you know. Um, so I thought that maybe a good way of doing that was setting out a theme and then building all of the all of the stories and all of the photography and even some of the design ideas around that that central concept. And so I've stuck with that. So the first part of the process of creating any any issue is figuring out what the theme's going to be. Um, and generally how that happens is I'll be getting submissions through throughout that entire time. And I'll be reading those submissions. And if there's a couple that I like, I'll 
I'll look at maybe if there's a common thread that links them and then that will be our theme. And then I'll put that theme out to um, our pool of contributors and say, this is the theme. I want kind of responses on this idea. Um, and the themes all come in very different ways. So so the idea for the theme for the, the winter edition, the one we've last done, came um, initially because I got sent this story by this guy called Adam, who was a policeman up in Aberdeen. And he, he wrote this story that was based on, it was a kind of a fiction, but it was based on his real lived experiences where he'd spent a night on the beat in Aberdeen and, and um, it, it included some of the stuff that he'd done. And then in the morning, he went and had a dawny uh, to kind of, and it was his way of like washing off all the experiences of this night before. And and the first thing I thought when I read it was, if you'd been sharing the lineup with him that morning, you wouldn't have had any idea about the the nine hours previous you know you'd think maybe this is a guy who's just jumped in for a surf before work or and so that got me thinking about like the there are lots of very well-worn narratives in surfing and lots of iconic characters who we know very well but maybe there are lots of really interesting sort of untold stories as well and lots of interesting lived experiences that fall outside of the scope of those narratives that we tell all the time so I sort of set off looking for stories like that um, for characters who maybe yeah fall outside the scope of the people you'd read about in a surf mag all the time and um, basically it's un- anything unseen. So that I always want, I always have quite specific ideas for the theme, but then I try and make them more general when I put them out to the contributors so that they can respond on it in any way they they want to really. Um, so in that edition, we ended up with. Uh, an excerpt from a book called How to Read Water, which is about how the Pacific Islanders m- learn about the swell patterns on the surface of the water and how, and they use that to navigate. So they could tell, like, if there was a, they obviously knew the dominant wind direction. So they could see, they could know which way was south, for example, if they knew that the dominant wind always came from the south but they would know what a north swell looked like in the pattern of the water and they would know what a west swell looked like in the pattern of the water. And so they would use those swell patterns to deduce then which way's west and which way's north. And they would also know when they were in the swell shadow of an island. And so, yeah, we went from something like an initial idea to something as abstract as that because it sort of fell under the umbrella of an unseen thing. You know, they had to train themselves to see and understand these patterns. Whereas if you stuck a normal layman in in their boat, they would have just seen rocky sea all around them. So that that's the kind of breadth of like um, response on the theme that I always try and encourage. Um, so yeah, that's the next stage of the process is getting people to respond on the theme and then I'll pick all the stories and then picture editing uh kind of go off and try and find photos to accompany the stories and that generally takes me like to lots of interesting places it's quite it's always quite tricky that bit but it can be super enjoyable as well so i wrote a a profile on a on a canarian guy um called sergio halcon who's one of the first guys to surf el camal the wave in in lanzarote had a super interesting life throughout the 70s he sort of traveled all over went to hawaii ended up in a Moroccan jail for a bit and to track down photos um, from his uh, to accompany his article I ended up calling lots of people and I spoke to Jeff Hackman in Hawaii because Jeff had spent a lot of time 
on Lanzarote hanging out with Sergio and then Jeff put me onto his mate who he reckoned might have had a camera at that time you know and I ended up speaking to this guy David Weaver who worked for Quicksilver in the early 90s and had had a a slide film camera and he FedExed his slides over from Hawaii so I got received this box of slides super exciting and went and scanned them all in because we got a slide scanner at the office so and they ended up just being the perfect accompaniment because there are all these photos of them on these like feral surf trips you know all around the canaries sleeping in caves and stuff so yeah it can be getting photos can be as complicated as that or it can just be as simple as hitting up a photographer and saying hey i know you you've been to this place you know um so for the reading water one um what i did was spoke to this guy who's like an indonesia based drone photographer and and sort of told him what the article was about and was like have you got photos that illustrate those wave patterns and how they go between the islands and he was like yeah and he sent me all these incredible like aerial shots where you can see the islands and then the way the waves move between them which illustrates the story really well so so that's photo that's getting photos uh and then we move on to once i've secured all that we move on to the design phase so i'll sit down with our art director who's a guy called ali and our lead designer who's a guy called henry um and we'll have a meeting and I'll run them through all the content and I'll show them any photos I've got already. Um, and they'll start to think about like creative title treatments and the whole like look and flow of the whole magazine from a from a like a art and design perspective. And they'll start working on that. And then we do lots of picture editing together. So I will have made them a folder of like my favorite shots that I think should accompany that story. And then they'll decide how which ones sit where on the page. So they'll say that one looks good next to that one. No, we can't have that one. So then there's always a bit of debate about like, are we going for like the best high performance banger shots, you know, or are we going to try and, are we going to put loads more lifestyle in because we want to create more of a feel of the that side of the story. So there's always a lot of discussion on that front. And then, um, and then we'll pick the cover at some point during that stage as well, which is basically I'll just hit up as many photographers as I can think of, um, who I think because so because we do two technically they're the summer and the winter edition um so each time we want to have because uh, we can't, we always pair the cover image with a color as well which goes on the back cover and then serves as kind of our colorway that we use to promote each edition so I always want to go for a summery-ish image and a wintry-ish image to go on the covers but beyond that there's not really any any stipulation I just want to see as many photos as possible and then we put them all up on the wall and uh, choose as a team and we because we do it over at this um this unit in Newquay which also shares with a framers and a belly board guy who makes belly boards so we'll get everyone in the unit like up onto the top floor when we're deciding on a cover and kind of get everyone's input and there's loads of really in, always loads that brings up loads of really interesting opinions and then we show it to the the bosses as well the publishers who've always got their own their own kind of spin on it as well like we look at it from a really like artistic point of view and they're always interested in you know is this going to sell obviously um we always have a big debate about the cover sometimes it, it comes down to the wire and occasionally i have told someone they've got the cover and then they haven't which is no <laughs> that's never never gets you in the good books um with the photographers but yeah it's always a um it's always a big point of debate and i think that just about just about covers it i'm sure there's loads more bits i missed out oh i send um then I send the whole mag to my colleague Paul to do captions because by that point in the 
process when I've just been like staring at it, all the staring at all the stories and the photos for months, and then working on all the layouts with the designers. Like the idea of them trying to come up with something interesting to say about each photo, my brain's just like pickled. So I send them to him. So if you love the captions, that is all. That's all, Paul. I can't take any credit for that bit. But um, yeah, that I think yeah, that's about that about covers it. That's about the process. Do you find you when people send you the stories that you're you're obviously reading them all as well? Do you find that you have to do much change to it, or is it just kind of? You know, forgive my ignorance a little bit because I, I know literally nothing about it. So are you like changing punctuation, saying this doesn't read right a little bit? And then do you do that for each story? Or do you have like an under editor as well that kind of helps you out? And you kind of the guy that goes, yeah, that's that's the one there that we're doing. Yeah, so, I, I, so it depends on the contributor. I've got some contributors who are like amazing writers and super literary and actually much more advanced in their in their writing than I am, certainly. And so those guys, I tend not to really touch it. Um, um, I'll I'll just let it be because I think anything that's in there is. You, I, I there was there's one guy um, in particular, uh, and I found one mistake in his recent thing, and I was like pretty proud of that because usually <laughs> this stuff is just is just flawless and perfect. And then there's other contributors who do, I have them in there because they have a really interesting take on things, but they're not necessarily really literary or really, you know, trained in a, in a writerly way. They haven't done, you know, loads of training. And so those, those guys and girls, I will like edit a little bit more. Um, but I always try and preserve the, their, their voice. I think that's, that's really important. So I try, I know there are some magazines that do really heavy edits from what I've heard, um, where you'll send them a first draft and it will come back with loads cut and loads and occasionally I have to cut big chunks out, but it's pretty rare. Generally, I'll just try and tweak like grammar and uh, spelling and stuff. And 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 some stuff definitely does slip through because no, I, I don't have a sub-editor. Unfortunately, I would love to have a sub-editor. That would be good because um, occasionally you... And it's, yeah, it's hard picking up a mag that's been out for a month and spotting a mistake in it. And you're like, oh, well, you know, where, where was I sat reading that where I missed that? But the answer is probably it was like, Maybe it was late and we'd been working for 10 hours or whatever. So, but nah, it's all good. I don't, th- I think people forgive you a few little mistakes, don't they? <laughs> I, think it's okay. I was just thinking about 16 year old Luke Gartside writing that little article piece for Bournemouth and sending it in and how gutting it potentially could be where you've spent, you know, put your heart and soul into something and then it comes out and you're like, I didn't write that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think definitely for the, for the writers who, really pride themselves on being great writers it is pretty gutting if you if you take big chunks out of it um but then there's other guys who maybe so we have some people who do more interview style stuff and then i think their their um their skill set is really in the way that they interact with whoever they're interviewing so hopefully they i like to think they'll be a little bit less um guarded over you know if you were to knock out a whole question or or, or something hopefully they, they wouldn't take it quite as personally as if you're siding out a, a great long literary paragraph from one of our like real writers writers contributors with the um we were talking about it earlier with the sort of like the, the decline in in surf magazines or surf literature at the moment you know with surfer magazine you know going under a, a few months ago do you feel like the the culture um 
with magazines is kind of changing a little bit or you know from from a, a magazine editor and a sales point of view you know are those subscriptions and people buying them in the shops is is it still as prevalent as it was yes it kind of goes through waves um our subscriber numbers like change quite a lot year on year and this year's actually been a really good year for subscriptions um it's part it partly owes to we've done some really cool collaborations with brands who've put up really cool product for people who want to subscribe like those free gifts those free gifts definitely go a long way to to encouraging people to take the plunge and then we hope that once they get the magazines and they read them, they'll be like, oh, yeah, this is great. So it's almost like a bit of sweetness. So I think that's helped in a big way. But so, yeah, our subscriber numbers have been um, pretty steady in the time that I've worked there. It's it's changed. The, the biggest change is obviously going from six issues down to two issues. Um, so the subscription as a result has become um, it's a little bit cheaper and also, it, it, I don't know. I think it feels a bit more special now because you're you're getting those two big thick issues a year rather than six that you might end up putting in the recycling. So, um, did those numbers reduce due to the fact that people were like buying it every couple of months, or was it was it a was it a decision made to make it like what you're saying? It's more of a you looking forward to maybe getting that book that seasonal book that comes through, whether it's, you know, the winter edition or the summer edition that comes through. And then that way you can be more articulate and concentrate more on that issue as opposed to just having lots of stories and just whacking it into a something because it needs to go out every two months. Exactly that. Yeah, that that was a, a major part of it. The other big part was we wanted to focus a lot more on digital content. So the idea with reducing from six, um, first to four and then to two was that our content output would actually stay exactly the same like we still generate just as much content still write just as many stories and take just as publish just as many photos as we did back then but a lot of it goes online now so we wanted to maintain kind of keep the quality of our online output as the same as what we would have put in the magazine when we were doing six and then save only like the very best most interesting engaging stuff for actual print because it's really expensive and obviously not great for the the planet to churn out as much print as you possibly can you know so um i think it made a lot of sense with the with the shifting landscape in terms of also the way brands wanted to work with us um it was just kind of a a confluence of a lot of factors but mainly what you say the the thing that excited me about it most from an editorial perspective was it it gives me that time and that space to like make sure that the print is really, really good because we're never rushing because we're like, oh, we got to churn out one and then we got to churn out another one in a month, you know? Um, so yeah, that was it. That was it from my perspective, really. Do you feel that, you know, going back to sort of like the, the magazine digitalization of the world at the moment, do you feel magazines is going to slow, you know, magazines are going to slowly tether out and the digital f- formats are going are gonna to replace it? Or do you think magazines are still going to be quite timeless yeah i think it will be a case of only a few will survive probably because the the desire to read stuff in print and also read the sort of stories that end up in print that you wouldn't necessarily read on a screen you know like i rarely read a a five thousand word article on a screen 
because you get distracted halfway through something you get a notification or something comes flashing up and you get distracted whereas people sit and read huge books with a hundred thousand words in or whatever so i think um i think for people who want longer form stuff there will always be print magazines that that cater to that in surfing i just think um that's the way it's heading and for magazine surf magazines that maybe focus on shorter form content um i think that will probably migrate more online as we've seen it doing you know like it's not it's not exactly me looking into my crystal ball that like that's the trend over the last couple of years isn't it that sorry a lot of the mags have either folded completely or they've migrated their whole content offering to web i think that trend will continue but at the same time they'll definitely always I can, you know i can't ever see the surface journal folding really like this the amount of the amount of love and and um sort of the association with quality and how important it's considered within the community i, I i'd be very surprised if there's a day when when that doesn't exist yeah some of those magazines are are you know like what you're doing with wavelength you know you talk about the surface journal they only pump out a couple couple of issues a year as well and that content is really really important because you know i've i've had you remember in the old days with surfer magazine you open it up and there was a few articles in there but the majority of it was ads how would you from your perspective being an editor why do you think those magazines have folded? Do you think it's because they've not moved with the times quick enough? Or do you just think that, you know, people aren't buying them because they're too heavily involved with advertisements, which, you know, for me, I would I'd probably read a story and I get fed up with it and I just put it down because I don't want to see Gabriel Medina with his, you know, wetsuit again. It's just kind of, yeah, been there, done yeah. that. I think it definitely has a lot to do with it that that people got bored of um not just the pages that were at not there being too many ads but also that some of the stories were too colored by um the fact that they they were really just a, another promotion for the brand um so you'd see the page with the advert and the product and the logo and then you'd read a story and the story was also just promoting that exact same brand again you thought well this is just nine pages of advertising like so I think that it was it was partially that, and and of course those magazine editors who work for magazines like that, like I think Surfer was a bit like for a time, um, would argue that that is how they needed to be to survive. You know, they needed that advertising money to to keep going. Um, so I think it's partially that. I also think it's the, the role of magazines has been shifting near constantly since their inception really that originally they were for news you know they were how you found out the contest results and they were um how you connected to surfing and obviously with the internet that got taken away a little bit and so then they adapted to being more about like trip stories it was almost like for a long time in a lot of magazines all you'd really find were very similar stories of like accounts of pro surfers going on a surf trip and so I think people probably got a little bit tired of the the same old format, you know. Um, and I think everyone, all all magazines were guilty of it to an extent. I think that's what the Surface Journal did really well at back in the day. That they came in, kind of smashed that formula and said, "We're not going to just do. Here's a couple of guys with stickers on their board. They went to this place." Some there was some sort of mishap, you know, maybe their car broke down or they had some, but it all came good in the end because they scored really good waves. And they said, no, 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 we're going to focus on 
much more interesting human interest stories than that. Or we're going to, and so I think a lot of the magazines that are still around now have followed in in their footsteps in that in that regard to say actually we're going to do what because it's it is in food writing for example and in um fashion writing they don't just turn up somewhere have a meal say how good it was and then leave they use food as like a, a springboard or an entry point to explore much wider things wider cultural things wider societal things or interesting characters who's have got these interesting human interest life stories that intersect with food and i think for a long time only small parts of the surf media were were really doing that um so i think that maybe i mean this is my personal opinion because those are the kind of stories that i like personally i i'm sure there are still people out there who really love reading like a classic surf trip story you know where they go and they score amazing waves and you see the photos of those amazing waves and then you move on maybe some people don't want it to be more complicated or suddenly bring in something in about like oh well they visited this place and and this is the political climate of that place maybe some people are like oh i'm not interested in that but um for me i've seen the magazines that are doing really well now are the ones who've diversified from that very well-worn format and the ones who stuck who clung quite tightly to the way the kind of stories that surf magazines have always told are the ones who've maybe struggled a bit now um now readership has shrunk and the internet's taken over a little bit i think definitely what what you're saying has kind of gripped a little bit with me because one of the things that made me put down surf magazines a while back was one the advertisements that was talking about but two was there's only so many stories, like you're saying, that you can read about pros going away and, and scoring waves. The the stories that I want to read are the human interest stories, like you're saying. I want to hear about Dave from Scarborough, who is pretty decent at surfing, and he goes to some far-torn island in Fiji or, you know, um, French Polynesia or somewhere like that. And, you know, he's, he's living off the land and he's working with the communities. He's, you know... A great story I saw during lockdown actually was some of the people that got stuck on the islands around the Mentawis doing surf trips there and they couldn't go home. So they were stuck there for like three or four months and they were like, well, what are we going to do? Well, they were helping the locals build the roads and, um, you know, fixing up houses and, you know, in the fields, helping with the farming, the crops, but also scoring amazing waves because the lineups were empty because no one was surfing them. And, and those stories there that are individualizing people that aren't in the media, they're not your Gabrielle Medina's, not your John John Florence's or, um, you know, your pro surfers. They're the people that kind of grasp you because when you're reading it, like we were saying earlier, you're then identifying with them and you, you're finding some form of connection with those as well and i think sometimes probably i mean i haven't read surfer magazine for a very very long time but you kind of losing that contact with people as well yeah yeah to be honest i haven't either so it's possible that i'm doing something that people sometimes do with wavelength that is kind of annoying which is having a having an opinion on the content without actually having read it for about 10 years so 
I I could I could be totally wrong and uh, if you were to look at all the magazines that have folded over the last 10 years it's possible that it's not the case that most of them spent most of their column inches running stories that were just classic normal you know pro surfer surf trips I could be totally wrong about that but it's just more of a feeling um that I have that exactly like you say the the stories that people want to engage with are ones that tackle something a little bit further outside of surfing and look at how surfing intersects with something else and it it's not it's also um there's so much more scope for stories like that because surfing kind of intersects with loads of stuff doesn't it especially within the realm so for example I, a couple stories i I've, i wrote a, a story last year about um do you know about Diego Garcia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I looked at that because then my original interest in it was because I found an old article about a service person, a serviceman who'd been stationed there and had managed to either sneak a board in or fashion one out of wood that he found. No, you there. do have to. Yeah. yeah, and he'd like gone off and found some waves, and I thought, oh, that's a cool story. You know, here's a guy who's been who's been stationed on a um, on a remote tropical island uh, which has waves and obviously you're not supposed to surf because it's a, a military base and he's serving um but he's found a way to go and surf um but then obviously that reading about that place opened up a much wider story about the history of the island and and everything that's gone on there and so surfing just was kind of the way in to tell a much a much wider story and so it's stories like that that i i really love i think um yeah those ones where it's ostensibly about surfing a little bit but not really there's loads of other interesting stuff to talk about as well yeah definitely there's one thing i did want to talk to you a little bit about um it's quite a controversial subject i guess um is lots of magazines and literature out there are very how can i say it like white caucasian orientated and there are lots of different cultures all over the world that do surf. And there are kind of some biases, I find. You know, whether it's regardless of your religion, your colour or something like that. You do find that the majority of magazines and, and literature, like I was saying, are more orientated that way. But also with gender as well. You know, a, a lot of a lot of magazines are more focused towards m- like males, for instance, for for surfing magazines because you know the sport is predominantly male dominated. I don't know the stats behind it, but I'll probably say it is. But there are some amazing women surfers as well. Women have their own separate magazine to to say the normal everyday run of the mill magazines. Do you find being an editor that that's something that you do take into consideration sometimes or is it just because those stories are not, I'm not saying wavelengths as a specific magazine, I'm using this as a generalisation, that magazines would probably not put articles or have articles in their format because they just don't have people writing it and sending it to you? Yeah, uh, so it is something that we've made um, a real conscious effort to address over the last couple of years, that both representation of communities that aren't based in either Australia, Hawaii or Europe or America, 
you know, um, because like you say, there's a massive, massive and incredibly diverse population of global surfers, like in Indonesia, across Africa, in Hawaii, that actually, it's, it's strange. Um, Lauren Hill writes about it really eloquently and beautifully in her new book, She Surfed, that where she says, actually, the idea of surfing being this kind of white male middle class thing is is really new, because prior to that, it was, I mean, it was a sport invented by the Polynesians, you know, and it, and it, if you, there are lots of different origin stories and surf historians argue about where it started first, but the main candidates are kind of West Africa, South America, or the, the Polynesian islands. So that no part of it really in its origins was a, a white European sport. And of course, the white Europeans tried to stamp it out in, in Polynesia. So it's only through its middle history that it's taken on this role as a, and it, I think it's largely to, I know it's not quite a question you're asking, but to address it briefly, I think it's because largely in the places where you, in the in the biggest, sort of like um, the surfing nations that are most dominant in the surf media, so Australia, America, and Europe, um, a lot of the coastal populations are really not very diverse at all. Uh, there are some glaring exceptions like Los Angeles in America, for example, but just using Britain as an example, you know, there is very very low ethnic diversity in Cornwall and people ask sometimes like why aren't there more um black surfers in Cornwall and it, I, I it's a, it's a really tricky one to answer because this obviously the simple answer is just oh because there's such low ethnic diversity in this place as a county but actually that doesn't really answer it because most of the surfers I'm friends with around Newquay and myself included, are people who've moved down here to surf. We didn't grow up here, you know, we're not from Cornwall. Um, but leaving that aside, yes, I've, I've, I've definitely worked hard over the last couple of years to um, make sure that there is more diversity, both in gender and ethnicity, in the stories that we're telling in the magazine, not as, as some kind of like tip my hat to political correctness or whatever but just because actually that makes for way more interesting stories if you if you represent a more diverse range of people so then you're not just telling the story of effectively the same person over and over again because the guy who you know the local surfer or the local um you know the local female surf club in Sri Lanka the women who are in that are going to have a vastly different experience of surfing than someone from North Devon, you know, the, the middle-class bloke who lives in Croyd. So it, it's not about like, oh, we've got to be more diverse. It's like, if we want to tell an array of interesting stories, then then covering an array of different ethnicities and genders is the, is the way to do it, you know? So yes, it is something we've tried to do. We're not there yet at all in terms of it's not diverse enough. It's still mostly the people who you've always seen in surf mags. And I think there will always be a little bit of a lag in terms of what you said, where um, the vast majority of people I have submitting stories to me, both the author and the people they're writing about, are usually from a middle class, white well, middle class European background. Um, but it is changing slowly, and I think the most exciting avenue of development is happening right now across the continent of Africa, which is obviously a silly thing to talk about as a big whole, but it is something that's that's happening across large parts of the continent, and it's happening through various organizations. Um, I did an interview with Mikey February recently, a really cool interview with Mikey, and um, he was talking about how, well, we were both saying actually how inspired we were by the reaction to the Dylan 
Graves Nigerian Weird Waves episode. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. So basically Dylan and the Vans team go and visit this community in Nigeria, which is built up around a, a man. I mean, they, they accidentally built a wave in the mouth of the um, of the harbour. It breaks off a harbour. It's kind of breaks off a jetty, like a wedge off a jetty. Um, and this amazing grassroots surf community is like sprung up around it. And all these kids, and, and it was just a really good story. It was a real interesting, cool piece. And Mikey's like, that's exca- exactly the kind of storytelling around African surfing that we want to do. We want to go and visit these interesting little communities, which no one really bothers to cover, and tell the stories of the people who live there. And I think the more of that that happens, the more interesting surf storytelling is going to become. Because like I say, the, the thing that makes surf storytelling interesting is the diversity of characters and backgrounds and life stories. And the way that you're going to find that is by going to different places, which traditionally the surf media has maybe ignored a little bit. And also that didn't exist before. That's the other thing. Like, um, It's not entirely true to say that these are communities of people in nations outside of those mentioned that have always been thriving and just ignored by the surf media. A lot of them are newer novel surf communities where actually surfing has only taken hold in that place in the last five years or so. So I think there's a little bit of a lag in the surf media sort of catching up to telling those stories, wavelength included, but I hope over the next couple of years, it's something that will get easier and easier as the popularity of surfing grows. And that's that kind of births a whole new generation in those places of local photographers and local writers who can email me and say like, hey, I live in this place and there's this amazing surf community and this interesting person with this interesting story put it in your magazine and I'll be like, yes, definitely. Send that to me. That's great. So, I think the reason why I'm asking that question is because I um, I was watching Sam Bleakley's Extraordinary Corners and it just kind of opened a thought process in my head because I think I've, I read a book a while back, which is about um, Israeli surfers fighting, um, surfing during like the fighting period there. And you, especially if you look at the coastline um, and you, you look at the areas around there, you wouldn't expect waves to come through there. Like, like the Mediterranean, for instance, it's not a vast ocean. How, how would the swell be created i'm not going to go into that there's a lot of science involved with it my point being is that that those communities there have been there for a long time but you wouldn't necessarily see them unless someone write a wrote a book or put an article into a magazine that that you would read so let's say you're white middle class guy girl reading them you know don't do, doesn't read a magazine doesn't read a book you're not going to know about those sort of things but why would you if you're not interested in surf media you might just be surfing because you enjoy doing it and you're not interested in magazines you're not interested in books you're not interested in this the surf media as a as a whole platform but what i find quite interesting is that like you're saying, it's slowly coming to the forefront now where you've got lots of diverse cultures that are coming out and people like who are, you know, high profile people like Sam Bleakley, for instance, who does the WSL commentary for the longboarding. He's putting some form of content out there to expose and show that people are doing 
riding waves, surfing, shaping boards in lots of extraordinary corners mm. that you wouldn't necessarily think of, which I think is a, is a really, really cool concept. Um, and when you start looking into it, you know, you kind of think, yeah, that's pretty cool. You've never thought of that before. Yeah. So I, I think there's like three evolutionary stages of of surf storytelling that we that we're kind of seeing playing out now. Um, and the first stage is very much like the endless summer version of the narrative, where two guys, two white Californian guys, go on this quest around the world to these exotic surf destinations, and the waves are very much the focus. Um, and uh, everything the, everything about the journey is sort of geared towards finding these perfect empty waves and everything else is kind of a bit of a sideshow is a bit of filler so they don't they kind of they observe the cultures that they come across sort of curiously but they don't really engage with them in any kind of meaningful way and then the second chapter is people um surf journalists and storytellers and filmmakers started traveling and engaging much more with the local cultures that they found and the waves almost in some of those examples became a bit secondary and actually it was about meeting the local people and checking out the local customs and you know when they go to fiji they always drink the the tea don't they and they you know watching the traditional dance and but it is still the um the author's and the surfers are still coming in from a different country and sort of observing and telling their story a little bit and then going home. And I think we're kind of entering a third chapter now, which is about um, emboldening those people to kind of tell their own story. And and I think that's the, the really exciting bit. And what Sam is doing um, with Brilliant Corners and also what um, Vance is doing with, with Weird Waves and what... Um, what Keparacero has done as well uh, through his work, I see them all as kind of strands of that idea of going in and not treating the culture as just a bit of a curiosity to be sort of acknowledged before heading to the waves, but actually meeting the people and giving them the chance to explain, you know, their perspective and their way of life a little bit more. And I think we're going to keep going more and more in that direction to the point where it will be like, there won't need to be any intervention from a kind of visiting Westerner at all. It will just be those people taking control of their own, the communities taking control of their own narratives and putting out the stories without the help of any, you know. And I think Instagram does help with that. Like now, if you're if you're a surfer in one of these places where traditionally you might have been ignored by visiting surfers telling their own story, um, you can start up an Instagram account and you can post photos and you can tell your story directly and you don't need someone from the surf media to come and you know effectively put a microphone in your face and say like come on tell me this this and that you can just tell it exactly how you want it and I think it is Instagram is really positive for that yeah it's an amazing it's an amazing platform where you know you can be average person average guy average girl and have an idea to put something out there and and grow grow something massively you only have to look at um influencers you know my kids I've, they were the first people really to kind of show me that there was you could make money from doing vlogs from the average household so they 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 are obsessed or were obsessed with watching families and their kids playing 
And then, you know, they're, they're opening boxes of toys and, you know, they're like, oh, this is this new toy. We've been sent this. Thanks very much. And, you know, before you know it, they've they started off with 100 followers. They've now got 15 million followers and people sending them stuff because people are, are watching them do things, watching other people's lives, which is a really, really weird concept, which theoretically is kind of what Instagram is, isn't it? Is you are looking at people's lives through picture and short videos and a little bit of dialogue like you were saying earlier. Mm. But you can make a living out of do that if you're consistent and, and passionate about about doing that, which, you know, talking about small communities from Africa or something, probably have never really thought about doing that before. But now they're getting the focal points where people are coming in to do interviews with them and then maybe they're finding work through doing that, which is a really cool thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think yeah, absolutely. That yeah, you nailed it. I think that's that's how it's gonna that's how it's gonna keep developing for sure. That soon I think we're probably heading towards a time when everyone in the world has a phone and has a phone that's connected to the internet. And I think it'll probably it almost certainly have its drawbacks in some ways but i think one of the positive things about it is it will give um everyone a voice and everyone a platform to mean that if they are um doing if they do have an interesting story to tell then they have the means to tell that story whereas previously they they wouldn't have had the means unless someone else decided that their story was interesting enough you know um I don't know if the positives outweigh the negative, but I'd like to take that as like the positive spin on it, that when everyone's interconnected and everyone's on the internet, then at least, uh, at least, yeah, people won't be, people will be able to tell their stories whenever they want. I'd like to think that there's a positive in everything, in everything, you know, when we were kids, you're like, don't watch the telly, too much telly because your eyes will go square. I, I... I mean, like I say, I've got kids, so I do see the positives as the positives and the negatives with it as well. You know, they get stuck watching stuff. And then, I mean, you must have done it yourself. Well, I've got 20 20 minutes an hour. I'm going to have a quick look at my phone. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to do this and do that. But then you get stuck scrolling. And then before you know it, 40 minutes of your life, 50 minutes of your life has gone. Um, I think that's where it, we're going to get lost a little bit. You're going to lose time because you're being pulled into these, into these social media attractions. Have you seen the film Social Dilemma on Netflix? I think I watched half of it. Yeah. Oh man, that just changed my <laughs> life. I was like that. I wanted to throw my film, my throw my phone out the window. I was like, this is the devil. It's the devil's tool. This is. It's about the one how the the software engineers at the social platforms like make it so that it's addictive and so it holds as much of your attention as possible. Yeah. So like? they put like they might put a post, which is what I always found kind of interesting is that when I loaded up Instagram, there was someone had put something up there like two hours ago was the first one and then 15 minutes ago then two minutes ago it's like well why is this in no order you know Mm. but then once i watched that i realized that whatever you're talking about or looking at on other platforms with on your phone and then bringing these feeds to the top 
which are then gaining your traction to hold you for advertisements and stuff, which is, I don't know, is it, is it a very clever ploy for advertisers or is it something that is going to detract you from life as well because you can get sucked into it super easy? Yeah, I mean, it's tough pre-reels. So do you know, I don't know. So I have to, but part of my job is spending my life on Instagram, um, whether that's like through my photography, although I don't actually, I'm not super active of how much of my photography I post because I spend a lot of time curating the wavelength Instagram and and a huge amount of that time is sourcing content. So actually when I get stuck in one of those 40 minute loops, I can sort of half pretend to myself that I was working that whole time. But like, <laughs> yeah. actually I was just what I only, yeah. So I think w- with reels, which is like the newer feature on Instagram that they've done to copy TikTok, um, that where they literally just feed you stuff that they know is super engaging content, but very little of it you have the you not learning anything from any of it and you're not because prior to reels i would have said that my feed i'd sort of curated it with stuff i was interested in and surf photographers who i was going to be inspired by and so i could kind of chalk that time spent scrolling down to like a bit of gaining a bit of inspiration you know it's not quite it's not quite the same as going and and spending time in in a library (laughs) you know and reading lots of great authors and saying like oh that has enhanced my my literary mind but it it is a sense of if you want to be a better surf photographer the best place to start is staring endlessly at loads of amazing surf photography and so it was good for that so I sometimes felt like if people are saying oh I'm just wasting my time on Instagram and oh it's just taking too much of my attention and I'm not really getting anything from it sometimes I was inclined to think well maybe you just need to curate your feed a little bit better and because there is amazing stuff on Instagram that's not a waste of your time to look at it's like enriching to look at but with reels I think that's gone out the window I don't think I could say that to anyone anymore because they they curate reels for you and it's like it's obviously the algorithm is based on how much attention you give to it but like very little of the reels I get fed Make, leave me feeling inspired to go and try a new surf photography technique they're all just a funny dance or like some cats doing something so yeah is the answer I definitely think the the way it's going the the potential is there to get but I don't know it's a good exercise in um in willpower isn't it if we can if you if you know that that's not a healthy thing for you to do and it's going to end up and you know if you're not just using it to relax or whatever and it's eating into time when you had wanted to be productive then you can be like all right i got a bit of a challenge here to say like stop staring at reels when i'm supposed to be working or whatever and and hopefully people i think people will adapt and rise to that challenge as we get more used to it it's just because it's so new isn't it they've tapped into something deliberately according to that documentary they've they've tapped into something in our psychology that's which we're not used to battling with you know that pleasure that they're, they're, they're giving you all that pleasure and so you're not used to going like no, I need to stop doing this pleasurable. I mean, we, oh, maybe we, it's something we've been battling with for a long time. Like, no, I need to stop doing this pleasurable thing because it's detracting me from what I should actually be doing. But maybe not in such an acute way before, you know? If you want to go down the rabbit hole, you, you think the evolution of the human mind and, uh, and, and the body has not kept up with the evolution of technology. For sure, yeah. The evolution of technology has just absolutely gone gone through the roof so is your brain capable of adapting that quickly 
to be able to cope with all this all this social media and this new technology that's obviously advancing monthly yeah i don't think our brain chemistry could possibly adapt that quickly i think what can adapt that quickly is like society and culture and so i already see you know you see ironically on instagram you see a lot of this stuff about putting your phone down and stop getting lost in scrolling and so i think the more the more the culture tends in that direction that it becomes a kind of pervasive cultural idea that it's not a great idea to spend loads of time obsessing over this stuff just in the same way as we say culturally it's really important to exercise and eat the right food i wonder if there will become this new cultural norm that it it's an unhealthy habit just like smoking or eating too much sugar that you've got to make a choice to curb and i think then we could adapt to that idea that if you start treating it like that in your mind like oh, I'm indulging in something that's, I'm overindulging in something here that, I, that I'm spending too much time on, then people will be able to curb it, possibly, I hope. Yeah, hey, only time will tell, right? Yeah, exactly, I'm even being optimistic. So what I'd like to finish on is uh, a little bit of a quick fire round. Okay. Okay, so being quick fire round, these normally last about 20 minutes. Yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> if the rambling I've been doing up in this up until this point is anything to go by, I don't know how quick it is. I'll, I'll do my best. That's super cool. <laughs> so here we go. So the first one, if you could ride one fin setup for the rest of your life, would it be a single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonza, or finless? Do I, am I living here for the rest of my life? Um, you live where you want to. Oh, it depends where I live. If I'm living here, I'm gonna. St- I'm riding a single fin at the moment. I think I'm just about to get like a twin pin or something with a t- with a twin setup. So I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm gonna go for the. I'm gonna go for the twin setup. It's most versatile, isn't it? Good choice. Thank I you. like my twenties. Yeah. Uh, favorite surfer and why? Oh, man, that's a really hard one. I I think, I think it's Tora Martin. I think I've got to go with Tora Martin. Um, just because it, just his style obviously is incredible and just the way that he like smashes up that whole everyone had before him I feel like everyone had the idea of anyone who rode mid-lengths or twins kind of pigeonholed as this just kind of high line like arms in the air do nothing hipster and everyone wanted to be like oh anyone who rides a mid-length it's like it's they're just showing off and they're just being a hipster but the way he blends like performance and power surfing with more classical style of surfing just smashes that whole pigeonhole and so many people have I think so many other people have seized on that now as well like like Asher Pacey and Bryce Young obviously they were doing it at the same time as Torrin I'm not saying that they were necessarily like inspired by his approach but there are so and Mikey February there are so many surfers now who are incredibly stylish and have like classically inspired lines but blend it with new school power but a new school kind of powerful progressive approach so though all those guys they're all my favorite surfer but especially him last self last surf film you watched oh man what's the not last? a clip clips are easy the full last full surf film i watched i honestly can't remember um it might be one of the ones we were showing at the drive-in I don't. I mean, we showed Dogtown and Z Boys at the drive-in, but I don't think that's te- technically counts as a surfer. I'll probably thank you. Mu- uh, no, no. I'm um, Lost Track New Zealand. 
with Torin Martin. <laughs> I was just about to say you were just talking I? about Torin Martin and you haven't talked about Lost Track. I know, yeah. So I think it was I think it was that one. I might have watched half of another one since then. I tend to di- I'll dip in for 20 minutes and then but yeah, that's the one I like. Went around my mate's house just after lockdown and sat and watched it start to finish, yeah. Yeah, there's a good uh, one prior to that as well. Um, Thank you mother. I can't remember. It was a need, another Need Essential one as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, they churn them out. Yeah, no, not... Uh, I think he was surfing like up in Norway somewhere. Yeah, Nordland, maybe. I think yeah, it was called yeah. Nordland. Yeah, yeah that was, yeah, that was cool. really good. Yeah. So I think they just loaded up a Land Rover and uh, just went off track like they did with the motorbikes. Yeah. Yeah, that was super cool. Um, the first surfing film you ever watched... Again, oh, I think it was um, maybe Step Into Liquid. Oh. Possibly. I don't know. I, I remember around that time, as soon as I watched one, I just started watching loads. So I, I, but I think, I mean, if Dogtown and Z-Boys counts, I think it was Dogtown and Z-Boys. I'm not sure that technically counts, but yeah, maybe Step Into Liquid. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with that. And finally, your dream surf trip. Oh, man been fantasizing a lot about going to Chikama recently um I went to New Zealand and surfed Raglan loads last year well I went once but I surfed at at Raglan for a couple of weeks and that was just mental and it's just like bar the the one that we've talked about earlier in this conversation we don't really have any proper left-hand points around here or the only couple that we have are like not very they're not very cruisy so I want to go surf like a super perfect really cruisy left-hand point so i think i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna go to karma nice that's why indo's the best place for goofies to go there right yeah i mean i could obviously there's lo- all those ones like around oh about I, do you know what i always really really wanted to go to macaroni's but then my mate told me that the earthquake there has changed it and it's yeah. not really mellow at all now apparently it's like pretty hectic now when it gets solid it's like not like quite like greenbush standard but still a lot heavier so that I scrubbed that off the list. <laughs> Not cruisy enough. Yeah. It's got to be Chikama. Nice. Luke Gartzai, thank you for talking to me on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. What a conversation. And I was super interested in the construction of a surfing magazine. Luke is such a cool guy and super knowledgeable in his field. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow and subscribe on your podcast provider and follow us on Instagram. Thanks for listening. 